Hello and welcome to another Eduink podcast. Today we're doing something a little bit different. I don't know if you've ever encountered Francois Nodier and his Super Teachers Unite podcast. If you have, you'll know that this man is incredibly passionate and enthusiastic about teaching. If you haven't, prepare for a treat. Today we're going to share with you a conversation that Francois had with Eduink headmaster Gershom Acheson and executive head Jax Acheson. Enjoy. Gershom and Jacqueline Aitchison are two amazing education entrepreneurs who are the owners of Education Incorporated, which is a boutique school in Johannesburg. Now, many schools are trapped within the legacy of tradition and the way in which we traditionally um, structure schools. Now, after the podcast, I had to go and see the school for myself. So I on their invitation, went to go and have a cup of coffee. We had some great conversations on the day, but I'm blown away by the way in which they approach education and the culture that you can feel in the school. So in today's episode, we chat about what it is that makes their school so different from the norm and how people can structure their schools and create a school environment that is going to be suitable for kids in today's day and age. Enjoy. Well, thank you very much for having this chat with me uh, today. We've already introduced our guests, so I'm very excited to get to know a few things. But as we do on the Super Teachers Unite show, we always ask our guests very important questions about the time when they were at school. So for our two guests, I'd really love for you to share with me some anecdotes or stories about the super teachers in your lives. You know, when you were at school, we all had these favorite teachers or teachers who made an impact on our lives. Who were these teachers? You can mention names if you want to, but who were these teachers and what did they do to impact your life when you were at school? I was very fortunate to, in grade six, go to the Drakensberg Boys Choir. And I think that was the first time that I really took note of teachers who invested in me. And when I say invested, it was about relationship. We're living in a very small place, a very beautiful part of the country. And it's a very small community, and it was the first time that I felt that adults were paying attention to what I was doing. And I remember distinctly the grade seven lesson when Mr. Stewart introduced algebra, and it was terrifying. And I don't know if developmentally we were ready for it. I remember that we had this vacant look on our face, and he ended up <laughs> jumping on the desk and having a kind of eureka moment that kind of got all our attention. And it doesn't matter what he was teaching that day. It was just the excitement about maths. And I know that Mr. Stewart is still teaching, and it's a shout-out to him. He was a super teacher in my life. And the second one was Bunny Ashley Boerter, the choir master, who, you know, he was a very strict man, almost tyrannical in his approach to the discipline and things like that. But his personal investment and the path that he walked with every one of us, especially with, you know, with me, it changed my life. And, you know, it's not just me saying that. My wife seeing me in the old boys choir and seeing me interacting with the old boys and how she can see that influence of those teachers and the choir school in that space. And maybe we should be mentioning that Bunny also threw his shoes at you when you guys weren't singing properly, but he definitely had his own unique style. We probably deserved it. <laughs> Made a point, it landed. We sung better afterwards. <laughs> Okay, but now I'm extremely interested. What voice are you singing in, in the choir? Are you a tenor or are you a bass? Um, I'm fortunate to have quite a wide range. So from second tenor down to bass. But usually I sit kind of in the middle in baritone. But it's depending where, it depends where I'm needed. So I started out as a desk and soprano, believe it or not. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I did. 
Well, that, that, that's amazing. Would you like a, a utility back for the spring box? Like where you need it, let's get you, let's get you in there. Yeah. When I'm singing well, I'd like to think that I feel that way, but uh, reality is probably a bit different, but yeah. Well, that's something I definitely want to delve into a bit later is that, that this, there's this juncture between sport and the arts, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, and you, Jax? I think one of the teachers that really stood out for me was uh, a teacher I had very early on. We had immigrated from Scotland when I was seven, and they put me into what is now grade three at seven years old because we started earlier in Scotland and I was reading quite well. And I really struggled. I, it just didn't go well with me for that first year. And there was one teacher who really took me under her wing, Mrs. Lorenz. It was the first time I'd experienced a teacher really seeing me not just a face in a classroom, not just a number at a desk, but actually seeing me and spending time with me, not necessarily on the academics, but helping me with the adjustment that I was going through as a young child in a very, very different culture. I remember, well, she did elocution lessons for me when I was uh, trying to learn the transition between this broad Scots accent and the South African accent. Uh, and then I remember also having a conversation with her the one day and she said to me, you know, Jax, at some point your immigrant status is going to fall away. So you're going to have to learn how to speak some Afrikaans. And I was terrified. Uh, and she said, no, no, it's fine. We're just going to go very, very slowly. And she had us all sitting on the carpets in her classroom and every child had to say an Afrikaans sentence before they could get up and go back to their desks. And I sat there absolutely quivering with fear because I, I didn't know a single word. And I was the all these kids were getting up and saying their sentences and going back to their desks and there were fewer and fewer and fewer kids on this carpet until, of course, I was left sitting on my own. And she was just so kind about the whole situation and so supportive about the whole situation. Um, and to this day, I remember the sentence that I ended up having to say because she coached me through the whole sentence saying, exit under the tafel. And everybody cheered and I went back to my desk and, you know, that was that. So, yeah, she was definitely a super teacher for me because she, she saw me and she literally held my hand through all the stages that I needed help with. She walked that road with me while I was adjusting. So she was just incredible. And, and here you are moving away from sitting under the table as the Afrikaans <laughs> sentence, and you are an owner of a school. How do you think that, that that vision that the teacher had, knowing that your immigrant state is going to fall away, you, you'll have to know some Afrikaans or having skills of, of the locals, how yeah. would you say that vision of that teacher played a role in, in you becoming who you are today? You know, a teacher like that and the experiences that we had with teachers like that, whether it was Mrs. Lorenz for me or Bunny Ashley Boetze for Gersh, the experiences we had with them definitely inform on the culture that we build within the school that we now have. Those teachers, that ability to see us for who we were and walk with us on the journey that we were taking is very much at the core of the relationships that we insist our teachers build with the children. Gavin was saying that, you know, you like to talk about superpowers. What are your superpowers within your school? And I do believe that that is one of our superpowers, the relationships we have with our children. You know, Gersh and I know every child in the school. And some heads will say, well, that's quite easy to do when you have a small school. We've built this small school model because in our experience, we've seen how well it works. And my answer to them is, well, we heard about spending time 
and learning about our children, not just their names, but what they like, what they don't like, so that we can, during a break time, walk up and say, so, hi, Johnny, how was your soccer match on Saturday? How did you do? Because it allows those children to feel seen. But it was a headmaster from a Finnish school who was in South Africa talking to heads at a conference uh, who came up with this idea of his secretary actually blocks out every break time and every lunch time, and he takes his coffee and he makes a point of walking around the playground talking to his children. And he has over a 1,000 in his school. So the number of students in your school is irrelevant. It's how much effort you're putting into seeing your children because they respond to that. If you get that relationship right, you can ask a lot of your children like the boys at Drakis are asked. You watch those Drakis boys and what they produce and it is absolutely mind-blowing. But it's because the teachers have relationships with their children. So very much for us, that's where it all came from and that's why we're going in the direction that we are. So if we can relate back to these individual teachers that you just mentioned that had an impact on your lives, if you were to identify one superpower or one characteristic that made this teacher a superpower, how would you describe that superpower? I think with Bunny Ashley Boeta, his superpower was he didn't believe that kids had limits. Mm. His, his superpower was realizing that kids are capable of way, 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 way much more than what average adults believe. And he communicated that expectation and got us to do it. And I think that is an amazing place to be. And Mr. Stewart was very similar in that in approach. He, there was no limits to what he placed on what the curiosity and our passions and what we can do. Mm. And I think both of those teachers, that resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mrs. Lorenz wasn't about to give up and think, well, here's this little Scots lass. She'll never learn Afrikaans. It was a case of, well, we'll just work on it until you have learned Afrikaans. So it's that belief that children are capable yeah. of a lot more. We, we place these boundaries and restrictions on preconceived ideas on mm. our learners. And then we just yeah. get happy when they get close to that. When in the meantime, they are capable of 100, 200% more than what we really give them credit for. Every time. As long as you set those expectations and communicate them clearly to the kids, they get there every time. It's why at Edging we have an aspirational pass mark of 75%. Our, our pass mark is 50 but we, we, we award for the aspirational pass, the edging pass is 75% because we don't want children reaching an average of 63, 65 going, okay, well, I'm, my job's done, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. That's not fine. That's definitely not fine. If, you know, the next time you get into an airplane, you better hope that your pilot got more than 65% when he was writing his exams. So 65 is not okay. So we keep pushing that aspirational boundary to show the kids that you can achieve it when we've shown you how to put all the steps in place and get all your skills developed up to that point. And then suddenly, boom, there's your 75 and you're getting your certificates and your rewards at honors evening and all of that sort of thing. And, and Francois, sometimes it's also knowing when to step out of the way. Mm. Giving them, you know, at Eduink we create a lot of spaces for the students and you know if you're into robotics then the workshop is your space to go and use and it doesn't matter if it's in the holidays or on the weekends or after hours at break you're allowed to use a 3d printer you're allowed to use and build the robots you don't have to ask permission you can arrange with the caretaker to go in and do what you need to do get out of their way and some of the most amazing things are coming out of just giving them the space to do stuff a safe space to do stuff you know yeah no, I, I agree with you. I definitely want to delve deeper into this a, a little bit later on. 
But before we get there, um, I run a recruitment company called Go Teach, where we assist schools in finding the super teachers to come and teach at their schools. And whenever I do an interview like this and I get the opportunity to speak to school owners specifically, I have to ask the question around recruitment. What are you guys looking for when you are appointing staff members to work at your school? <laughs> now, the reason we're laughing Sorry. is that this is a very... If you went and looked on our website at our recruitment, you'd be going, we've never seen this before. Yeah. We call it the Shackleton process. And it's based on Ernest Shackleton. And he was recruiting men for going to the South Pole. And I'm, it's probably a very ab abbreviated version of what I'm talking about. But his ad was, men wanted a dangerous journey, pay low, success doubtful, reward if come back, it's going to be a lot of esteem type of thing. And he kind of put it out there as this is what it's really about. And our Shackleton process is exactly that. Teachers wanted, toughest job in the universe, pays low, rewards immense, and you're probably going to cry quite a lot along the way. And the thing about Ernest Shackleton is that he ended up on his ice-breaking ship getting caught in um, the ice flow. His ship got crushed. Everyone got marooned on an ice island, and it took them six months to trek to a place where people could you know, get them back again and into civilization. And he didn't lose a single crew member because he had the right team members on board with him. And again, that's a very abbreviated version of what happened. But when looking at recruiting teachers, we've done it over many years. And the very strong team we have at the moment is a result of realistically understanding that being a teacher is probably the toughest job in the world. So that's how we put it across in the, in the application process. We have a space for a very short CV, but it's more about answering questions about themselves and for us really putting across that the job is not for sissies. Gersh and I don't believe in hiring someone with a fabulous CV with a great brain in their head and then as soon as they walk through the door expecting them to stop thinking. They're going to be hired because they have a brain in their head and then we're going to say, right, go. And so there's a lot of, I suppose there's a lot of deep end, but we do offer the water wings. And we walk the journey with them. There's a lot of training and a lot of support. But it has resulted in an exceptionally strong team. And I think their response to COVID, you know, is a, is a recent example of, of just how strong they actually are. I think the deputy head in the last two days was having a chat to him and he said, talking about the new teachers and, and how they're fitting in. And he said, Edwin's got a very open plan when it comes to teachers. Yeah. And, you know, Jax talks about deep end. You've got a brain, use it. Um, if you need help, ask for it, and we'll provide the support. But if we walk in and we let you put your toe in the, you know, in the pool first and then slowly get in, we're not doing you any favors. You know, We're not getting you to self-author, as it were, in that space and create what you want to be. I don't want a, a robotic teacher. I want mm. somebody who's authentically themselves, brings their own uniqueness to the classroom and is absolutely passionate about what they do, excited because curiosity and passion for students comes from a passionate teacher and an excited yeah. teacher. If you don't like what you're doing, find something else to do. And part of that for our teachers is not just about what they bring in the classroom. We have a whole lot of clubs that the teachers create based on their interests. And it varies from term to term as you know, the kids and the teachers have an intersection of interests. And we ask the teachers to share that. Because when they're sharing their passion, be it on the subject or whatever they're interested in, that curiosity, you never know if it's that club for one term on photography that the one teacher is passionate about that inspires something in, in a child and we're asking them to bring their whole selves to the job be entirely authentic about what they're doing and be comfortable being uncomfortable mm. you know well i think it's also just we look for people who 
bring more to the party than just somebody who's going to stand in the front of a room and work through a textbook page by page. We are an independent school writing the IEB metric, and that gives us a certain amount of leeway to play with the curriculum a little bit. We're very fortunate with that. We don't have to be as prescribed to that CAPS curriculum as the average government school. So we need teachers who are, A, qualified. They have to have their absolute minimum PGCE, et cetera. You know, we don't take teachers who don't have qualifications, obviously, but are still curious and excited about their subject. Because if I'm working with a grade four, for example, and I'm doing social sciences, what's more important, to spend time page by page going through a textbook, a prescribed work, or to spend a month out of a term building a weather station that we code and we put the whole thing together, we set it up, we code it, it's computerized. What's a more valuable exercise and what is going to produce a better outcome? It's going to be the weather station. So we look for people who come up with these creative ideas and are not afraid to actually go for it with their kids and take those kids with them on this journey. We prefer teachers who have got a PGCE and they've got an undergrad in the subject that they like to teach because the base knowledge is a lot bigger than teachers who have done a teaching qualification or teaching diploma type of thing. Mm -hmm. And it means that you've got a teacher who's teaching maths who's got an honors degree or master's degree or something like that with a PGCE. If I see a teacher teaching out of a textbook, then they shouldn't be in that classroom. You should be able to go in there and talk about your subject from top to tail without having to look at the textbook because you know the content and it allows a lot more freedom in the classroom when interesting things come up to be able to talk about it in the context of the students' lives and bring the world into the classroom. If you're teaching out of the textbook only, it becomes very restrictive and you can't really deviate from that when the lesson asks for it or something interesting comes up. So textbook teaching is a no-no for us. You can refer to it, and I know it's a safety blanket for some of the kids and some of the parents, but the teachers should be able to walk in the class, have an idea of what that lesson's going to be about. They've got the content. They know how they're going to test the knowledge and jump in like that. So that's like sticking your head into a hornet's nest if you ever need to put that out on social media because <laughs> uh, you see this on Facebook happening so so many times on these teacher groups where people ask the question, what's better, a, a B-Ed or a PGCE? And I am We're not aware. mad enough. I am not man enough to, to weigh in on that. I, of course, um, have my bias because I've got a PGCE <laughs> and I come from a zoology background. <laughs> but I also, I've also taught um, in a B-Ed program, getting students uh, through the B-Ed program and seeing them teach. So that's a, that's a very contentious issue, but I, I definitely Absolutely. want to chat about that because you, you guys are breaking some legacy thinking with, with policies like that. But how do you know from an interview that when a teacher sits in an interview, I mean, there's no way people can bullshit a lot during. <laughs> Absolutely. A, is it intuition or what? Is there something that somebody does during an interview that you go, yes, this is the teacher we want? No. No. We and doubt ourselves. Yeah, all we the doubt time. ourselves all the time. We, we've tried lots of different approaches. Our Shackleton interview process has been the most successful so far. It does include them actually recording themselves giving a lesson as well. So that because, I mean, you're interviewing for a teaching post and yet you're sitting having a conversation with a person. You're not seeing what you're actually interviewing for. So we ask for that video so that we can try and get a sense of, of their interaction and their ability to connect with their kids and create those relationships. But it's, it's very difficult. It's a continual work in progress trying to get this recruitment 
thing sorted out. And yes, we are probably a little bit biased in terms of our own backgrounds as well, which is similar to yours with the PGCE tacked on at the end. The B-Ed for us is something that we're a little wary of because it tends to result in someone who's gone to school, then gone to varsity and studied a B-Ed and then come back to school. Whereas the PGCE, like Gersh said, tends to be somebody who's been passionate about something, then tacked on a PGCE, and they tend to bring that passion into the room with them. So they bring a little more life into the room, a bit more experience into the room, and that is always communicated to the children. We want our children to see what's out there in the world. So we're looking for that scope from that person. But it's exactly what you say. You, you, you have interviews with people, and half the time you, you're watching and listening to this person thinking, you're just telling me exactly what you think I want to hear. <laughs> How legitimate is this? Yeah, I think we, we, there's, there's two things that we've started focusing on that has helped us feel a lot more comfortable and we think brings out the authenticity in it. The first is that we say to the person coming in, you're sitting here because you've got all the qualifications. We like what we saw with your teaching. The interview with us is to see if there's a meeting of the minds, to see if we have a relationship, to see if this, you're somebody we can work with. Because you know, ideally, if you're going to have relationships with students, you need to have relationships as leaders of a school with your staff as well, with your teachers, your faculty. And that first interview is just about us finding a connection, some common ground, and just seeing if there's a meeting of the minds in terms of how we're approaching education, what the school's doing, what your thoughts are, et cetera, and where you are in your life. And then the second thing that we do because we can't always just trust our own judgment, we always bring our own bias and filters to the to the party, is that we then hand them over to the faculty. So we'll choose three or four teachers, depending on the circumstances, who's available, who's interested in it, and we'll do a second interview where that person goes and talks to the teachers, because ultimately, Jackson and I might be the leaders of the school, but we're not in the trenches day-to-day as the teachers are, and they have to know, this is a dude that I can rely on, if the person's not going to do the job properly, then they're the ones who are going to have to pick up the pieces and help them along. They're the ones that are going to have to train them and help them in that process. So it allows for a lot more buy-in. This is someone we got on. So when things, you know, if the team has chosen this person as well and given us feedback, then there's buy-in from helping and walking the path with them. And that's probably created the stronger team because prospective teachers are a lot more comfortable asking the tough questions of their teammates. So what is the boss really like and what is it really like working here? And they'll get a realistic idea of what's happening. We found that at the moment that's working. As Jackson and I said, we don't have a fast and hard. It's experimental and we're trying to keep it as experiential as possible in that place as well. Trying to get to the root of authenticity so that, as you said, there's no BS happening when they're coming in and sitting in the room, you know. Look, we have heard from some of the applicants that it's that second interview with the faculty that's particularly vicious. Apparently, the interview with us isn't so bad, but it's <laughs> it's when the teachers are actually interviewing prospective teachers that they really get into the nitty gritty. So it seems to be working so far. And I mean, that, that makes all the sense in the world because teachers know that when you work in a team, there's there's no time to spend on training somebody else or like spending so much resources and energy and getting somebody onto just the basic level. Like by the time you want to start working as a teacher, you need to be ready to work as a teacher and part of a team. And if you can't yeah. pass that quality check almost during that interview, sorry, your your colleagues are not going to give you a thumbs up because they know how much they are going to struggle down the line. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Teaching is not for sissies. There is no two ways about that. 
And I think that's what the team's looking at when they're interviewing prospective applicants and all of that. They're doing the sissy check because <laughs> they yeah, don't want to exactly. have to pick up those pieces. <laughs> Exactly. So well done. I think that's a big part of legacy that you guys are breaking is that traditionally the recruitment process is a lot more top down where the principal and SGB have interviews Correct. and they are so, so, so blown away by this person's interview skills. But as you said, interviewing is not teaching. It's not, it's not no. the same concept. And they say, you know, hiring someone is guessing, firing somebody is knowing. But as, a, as, a, <laughs> that's perfect. as an employer, I mean, that's no solace for us, but it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's really a challenge. Yeah. And I think what is important is that we listen to the staff. There have yeah. been a couple of interviews, as you say, that we've been really excited about. We've sent them down the line and the, and the answers come back, no. And there's been proper reasons for it. And we listen and say, thank you very much. Moving on. It also gives the, the rest of the team a sense of ownership because there have been times when our feeling has been no, but the team has been very enthusiastic. So that means that, yes, the buck stops with us, so ultimately we're going to make the decision. But the team has enough strength and accountability to turn to Gersh and I and say, you need to explain that because we were actually quite happy with this person. So mm -hmm. can you tell us why that became a hard no? Um, and we've worked hard to promote that sense of reciprocal communication and reciprocal accountability within the relationship and it's exactly what you say it's not this linear top-down structure we've tried to flatten all of that so that there is a sense of accountability throughout the entire team it's our school and our value system that we are curating here we're doing this together and i think that if you if you want to give students a sense of agency over their studies and their path and what they're doing in school, you have to do the same with teachers because yeah. they'll model it for the students. There cannot be this dichotomy of an expectation of something for students that you would not have of teachers. It needs to be coherent. Well, great stuff. From the conversation we had already, I'm picking up a lot of the, what we call legacide, the things that kill your <laughs> business because, you know, yeah. We've always been doing it in a specific way, so we're going to keep on doing it. But you guys have the, I almost want to say, the fortune of being in charge of your own school. So your vision is built into the school from the ground up. And that helps a lot with not sticking with the traditional education system. When you guys conceptualized the school, what were the things that you said, you know, we want to break away from traditional education and we want to implement this in our school? I think first and foremost is the size of the school. Mm. We made a conscious decision not to have a large school that based on a whole lot of different things, including uh, Malcolm Gladwell's talk about the perfect size being 140 people in total to know everybody and have a, a sense of community and things like that. My experience at the Drakensberg Boys Choir, understanding that we were not going to ever get rich and wealthy off this, but that we would be able to make significant difference in a select number of people's lives rather than make a minimal difference in a large number of people's lives. So it was a conscious decision to have a small school so that we could have relationships. And it's posed its own problems in terms of, you know, Jackson and I are the owners, we financed the school ourselves, and we continue to do that. But it's meant that when it comes to creating and curating the culture of the school, it's been very deliberate. As you said, we've been very fortunate in actually deciding we're going to have a school. This is what it's going to look and feel like and setting that up from the word go. It's a place where everybody comes together. It's not where some people are let in to a legacy from the past as well. It means that everything that is in that school 
is the new South Africa. It is everything that we should be standing for and be proud of because it started in that space and we're all coming from where we are to that place in the middle. It's quite difficult sometimes because it's quite unusual for the people running the school also to be the people who own the school. We have a board who we still report to because we've made sure that all these structures are correct and the accountability is all in place. But, you know, when Gersh and I sit, for example, in a heads meeting with uh, Isasa or the IAB, uh, Sahisa being the, the heads section of Isasa, we're definitely in the minority. It's, it's very unusual to have the owners and the, the, the heads as, as one person or two people in our instance. And it means that we have to continually be quite discerning about what we expose ourselves to because it would be very easy to fall into what everybody else is doing in the independent school space. So, you know, it, that would be the easier route to just say, well, everybody's doing it this way, so let's just do what they are doing. You know, they're a successful independent school, so why wouldn't we do that? Well, we wouldn't do that because we set out to do something different. We weren't trying to be different for the sake of disruption. That wasn't the intention. It was because we believe so passionately in successful education being relationship-based and, and the amount that we can actually achieve with this is incredible and producing these socially responsible, incredible human beings that we actually want to see 10 years after they've graduated because they are just good people. Yeah, we have to be quite discerning and an example that I can give you of that that's a bit like the hornet's nest you mentioned earlier. You know, last year when we were in the, the heat of COVID, we would normally have a Sahisa meeting once a term, for example, but uh, we were having them once a week while we were really in the throes of, or, you know, trying to coordinate labor department and education department and everything else, health department, and get all these protocols sorted out. And while a lot of the information was valuable information that we needed to be able to get back to school successfully, there was a lot that wasn't necessarily relevant to a school of our size. We don't do ECD, for example. We start at grade four. And... The meetings became, for Gershina, the meetings became a source of our stress and a source of our depression. What the, we were really getting quite bogged down by the whole thing. So we made the decision to not attend some of those meetings and to kind of tag team on some of them, that he would do some and that I would do some, and then we would only discuss the pertinent bits with each other so that we were eliminating a lot of the, the weight that other independent schools were taking on and communicating that was not relevant to us and we were not achieving the objectives that we needed to achieve. You know, Gavin said something really interesting to us when, when we started the COVID journey. He said to us, you have to just keep your arc afloat. That's your journey here. Keep your arc afloat. And Gersh and I really took that to heart. You know, it was whatever needs to be done here. And our arc is our whole community, the, the children, our staff, and their families because they're all interlinked and interconnected. So that was the objective we set out to to survive COVID with. It informed a lot of our decision making and allowed us the space to say, okay, you know what, Gush, you take that Sahisa meeting and then I'll do the next one and we'll only communicate the bits that are relevant to us. It also stopped us falling into that that current that everyone was just following for the sake of it because it was the easy route. So it is unusual, but it's working. 
that I think that's the amazing thing about the setup that you guys had and the vision that you have is that you aren't like the mainstream independent school or the mainstream government school. You've purposefully and intentionally designed your school the way it is. So being part of those type of meetings, a lot of the information from that wouldn't be relevant to you. But you can easily fall in the trap of thinking that it does. And at the end of the day, that then um, results in your own mental health being affected. And that could spill out over into the rest of the school. And it does. Yeah, no, for sure. What I wanted to mention is the, the school size where you said you, you guys take 140. I think that was correct, Gersh, 140 kids. So the school is designed for 100 kids. The rest of it is, you know, we've got probably about 20 faculty members and custodial staff, including the leadership if we add our board to that, we start getting up to the 130 mark. So the whole community is sitting at about 130 active members in that space. When it's at capacity. When it's, yeah. when it's at capacity. And I think one of the privileges that we have been the founders and owners of the school is that after nine years, we are at 75% capacity because we are very judicious about who we want to be part of that community. We are the only pressure for bums on seats is ourselves and making sure that the school is sustainable and that we're doing what we need to do. We don't have shareholders that we're beholden to. And I feel that it means that it's a more authentic space for kids to be in and it's run more authentically as a, an organization that has the kids' interests at heart as well. Mm. And that's so important. And just even from an evolutionary point of view, I remember reading in Yuval Noah Hariri's book, Sapiens, he made specific mention of this that early communities of humans lived within the, the parameters about 100 to 150 because that's still manageable. Yeah. And it's Correct. from an organizational point of view that makes all the sense to me, especially when you think about from an economics point of view, how attractive it is to have these mega independent schools and having bums on seats because at the end of the day, it remains a business and you want to make profit. So the more kids you get in the school, the more profit you will make. How did you guys fight against the economics or the, the allure of making, you know, millions from a private school versus making an impact? It's a tough one. Maybe in another life. <laughs> um, yeah, this, this is a, a tough one because I would not call us an under-resourced school, but at the same time, we are not one of the, the mega schools, as you spoke about, you know. I remember a teacher from one of the mega schools about 10 years ago, the school had done a big extension and we were around there for a bra and I kind of just sort of gave him a nudge and I said, so how much did this set you guys back? And he said, no, this set us back 60 million rand and we're very proud of the fact we didn't go into debt for it. And I thought, what? But that's, that's what a mega school lives with, you know, so their resources are readily available where we have to be very careful and discerning with our own. So, for example, when, again, in the COVID scenario, we were literally, Gersh had that budget open every single day on a screen on his desk because we were literally reallocating funds as we needed them. You know, we, we really pride ourselves on not asking parents for extra money during the year. We don't want to be that school that we advertise one fee, but then every month you get an invoice for more and more and more. So we were literally taking things like, well, we've allocated that amount of money for outings this term, but the kids can't do outings because they're in lockdown. So we'll take that money and we'll put it across to putting them all on a Udemy course and the Udemy course uh, is going to be part of their life orientation for this term. So that's how we operate within that very tight budget. It's a very neat budget, as our board CA told us. It's a very tight, neat budget. Um, but how did we come to that? 
I don't want to sound all altruistic and, and like we're a martyr because we're not. But it's about the passion. You've got to be able to love what you do to pour this amount of resource in it. You know, you want that passion to cascade down. You want those values cascading down through your staff and through your students and through your families. And when you're pushing the dollar, when you're pushing that bottom line, that's not going to align. You're not seeing children anymore. You're seeing what those children can bring financially. And that just doesn't gel with, with what we're about. So it's not an easily juggle that we do, but so far so good. I think the other thing is that I have to give a shout out to our board because they are people who are like-minded, they challenge us, and all leaders need to be, have people that they respect enough that can challenge them and call their BS when it happens, stop them from being tyrannical and making bad decisions. And we've got a board that does that very, very well. I think there's a lot of transparency when it comes to the budget, even with the teachers. We talk about, even on our podcasts, we talked about the budget this year and what the challenges were and where we've reallocated so that the faculty, the families, and the kids could see that we didn't finish off a project that we were busy working on, but the money has been diverted there. So when you walk into the school or whatever the case might be, that's where it is right now because that's where the need is. And there's an understanding and an ownership in that space and, and a lot more respect from the kids when they're using the equipment, understanding why and where and how much it's cost so that they're aware of the real value of it. It's not just walking around going, oh, the school's got so much money. We're not doing an outing this term because you're doing a Udemy course. And you don't have the new sports equipment that we promised because we've now built hybrid classrooms, which cost even more. But you're now able, if you're not at school because you've got COVID or a family member has that you can still participate. So, And I think it's something that's lacking in our society in general. I think that's why we sit not trusting governments and government institutions on their expenditure because where's the money going? If we are teaching them to be fiscally responsible that their money is their money and other people's money is other people's money, then mm. let's talk about that in that space. And we're entrepreneurs at heart. We're educational entrepreneurs and we try and share that with the students. When we're doing business studies, when we're talking about ethical dilemmas, we talk about what we face day to day because mm. it's tangible and the kids see it around them as well. Yeah, it's taking them beyond the first level of thinking. So we spoke quite a lot about how much information on the budget we would give in that podcast because our, our fundamental belief system, like I said at the beginning, is there are no secrets. There shouldn't be secrets behind the running of your school. This is our school, our community. So you should have knowledge about how it's all working and how it's all staying together. And again, it's that cascading value system. So we were very fortunate to be an independent school that by the end of last year, we hadn't had a single case of parents saying, I'm not paying my fees because my child hasn't been taught. And I don't believe that was through luck. I think it's because we have been so communicative about how the money is being spent and delivering the value that they expect from Eduink. Yeah. Whether it's at home or on campus, they are still experiencing the same level of value. They're not thinking, oh, well, my child's just had work dumps every Monday, so why would I be paying? There's no teaching happening. We didn't do that. So um, that value system comes right through. And, and, I, and we want to take those kids beyond. We don't want children sitting saying, oh, well, there's you know, 75 kids in the school and my fees are this, so multiplied by seven, 75. Oh, wow, the school's got so much yeah. money. To take them through, it doesn't work like that. These are the expenses. This is how it works. Take them beyond that level of thinking so that they can actually take that into the world. 
Um, that is really, really important. So what I'm, what I'm hearing a lot here is this intention around school culture and community culture, which is really commendable. Absolutely. I think the, the final question that I want to ask is related to the pass mark that you spoke about earlier, is that you mentioned a pr- preferential or a, a preferred pass rate. Maybe just take us through the thinking around that. The 50% pass mark as a minimum pass mark got two functions. The first is in the tertiary world, in the real world, when you, as an adult, 50% is the pass mark for most subjects um, in tertiary education, etc. And secondly, if you get 50% for all your subjects, we feel that you, we've opened the door, the best door possible, which is a bachelor's pass, which allows you access to tertiary education if you want that. So that's why we've set the pass mark at 50%. That 50% pass remains in place right through until the end of prelims. prelims. So they have to maintain their 50% pass right through their prelims as well. And then the aspirational pass is 75%. And there's also two reasons for that. The first is that's a distinction in most tertiary spaces as well. Um, and more importantly, it takes you into the higher cognitive thinking. You know, the most of your exams, most of your tests – um, if they're structured properly, the top 30% of those questions are in the higher cognitive space in terms of Bloom's taxonomy. So the first 30, 40% might be in your, in your lower cognitive, your middle cognitive being from 30, 40 to about 60, 70. But we want our kids to engage in the higher cognitive thinking spaces, which is synthesizing, analyzing, creating. And having an aspirational pass of that looks like what the rest of the world looks like in terms of distinctions and, and, and recognition in that space but also having them wanting to be in the higher cognitive thinking space is very, very important for well, us. Well, it tells us as teachers as well that the child's passing and moving into that cognitive space. We've covered all three cognitive levels. And again, talking about the cognitive levels, it's a conversation we often have with the kids and the parents. So we're all speaking the same language. You know, if, the, if we're going through a test with the children, we'll say to them, what cognitive level is that question? And they can identify it. It's not a mystery. It's not this big magical thing. But the 75% tells us as the teachers that our children are covering all three and moving into uh, the higher third space. And I like that because it's Bloom's taxonomy and cognitive like theory can easily just be theoretical. And all teachers who go through any form of formal training know about Bloom's yep. and we but when it really needs to be applied, it's almost like a back end thing for teachers. Like if we ever do lesson planning, then uh, we would like <laughs> maybe think of Bloom's taxonomy as part of yeah. our lesson design. But in this case, if I hear you correctly, it's part of the company or the school discourse and that the kids mm. know intimately what is uh, required of them. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's part it's of what the we were saying. Culture. Yeah, you tell children what your expectations are, you communicate with them about and that, and they get there. Yeah. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. Now, that's amazing. Now, I know we're talking about a 50% and a 75%. That's a, a quantitative like assessment or, or feedback that is given. What, from a qualitative point of view, how do your teachers do qualitative feedback for kids? Well, that speaks to your formative assessment as opposed to your summative, which is your marks at the end. And uh, we do a lot of training around what formative can look like and in all its different shapes and forms and, and, and how you actually gather that information. And it's one of the areas that personally I found quite challenging in COVID with all of our children online in every lesson. I had completely underestimated how much information I get from my children when they are sitting right in front of me and I can see those faces clearly, I can see what their hands are doing, I can hear the voices modulate. 
which I don't, you know, all cues that I wasn't picking up while they're sitting when you're seeing all of them on on your screen. So the formative assessment, whether it's from a quick revision Q&A as you walk in the door or a game that gets played, that's teachers gathering information all the time on the mastery level of the content being taught. We tell our students, you have one job and your one job is you do not leave the room until you understand. Don't leave the room until you understand what's been taught that day. Even if it's bigger than what the teacher can re-explain to you at the end of the lesson, set up an intervention with that teacher right there and then. And again, it's that agency that this is my work, my school career. It's up to me to get this right. So something else we've done, and this is an advantage of being a small school and being the co-founders and still involved in the day-to-day of the school, is that teaching teachers to get away from the quantitative, you know, formal assessment, the summative assessment that Jax was talking about is quite a process because it's hardwired into us, even through our own learning experience. So there are certain subjects at EduInc up to grade nine that I've made non-examinable, music and movement, technology. And what we've done is in that space, instead of following the old ice cream stick bridges and things like that, I introduced them to EGD for one semester and then I introduced them into building Raspberry Pis and coding and things like that. And I've challenged the teachers in music and movement, the grade nines make a movie. So the first term is scripting it all out. Second term is making all the, the costumes and that. And the third term is putting it all together and editing. There's so much more skills happening in that space. Soft skills, learning to work as a team and dynamics. And I can't make it to the shoot because of this, figuring it all out. Sometimes we have to jump in and intervene before blood spills. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it's challenging the teachers to be able to evaluate performance, not on an end result, mm. but on the process that leads to it. And it's part of design thinking for us. We want them to go through a process of fastest path to experience. And if the teacher sees them doing that, they're rewarding that mm. rather than belabor something that's really not working. Okay, that's not working. Let me try something new. We want teachers to reward the iterative process of failing, starting yeah. again, failing, starting again. So we've created subjects where these teachers are able to form opinions based on participation. They create rubrics that are different to what they would do normally just on the base marks. And it's it's starting to seep into the normal academic subjects because it allows them to see the strengths. And what we're seeing and how it's coming out is that the quality of the different types of assessments the teachers are using in the traditional subjects where they are understanding that different students have different strengths, therefore they are able to demonstrate their skills in different ways. It allows you to have two topics for the same assessment and still have it, but there's one child who is better equipped to do an oral presentation than a formal written presentation, for example, whereas you can get the same test of knowledge and mark it in the same way, but it's presented in two different ways. So we're challenging the teachers to do that through creating a space where they're very uncomfortable, they're not used to being able to evaluate children on things that are not black and white and binary type of thing. Mm. And it's an interesting conversation, but it's opening their minds to assessment being different than just putting down a formal assessment and then you get your marks and that's that. And I think a very important note on that is the more holistic umbrella view that we take with assessment. And it's all about that process. We consider that, that matric exam to be the event. That's the only event that should really be in the school process. Other than that matric final, it's just a very long journey where you are evaluating each particular child as they go. So obviously at the end of last year, for example, 2020 had been such a different year in how we had to assess things. 
we had to take all of the different variables into account when we looked at those final marks, including things like how well did that child step up to the online process? In other words, were they at their desk every day on time? Were they prepared? Did, had they switched their computer on 30 minutes before the lessons began so that if there was an update, it didn't interfere? How did they handle it when ESCOM load shed? What did they do? How did they communicate? We had to bring all of those other things into the assessment as well because that was part of the learning that had taken place. It was part of how that child had formed and what defined their success in 2020. So it wasn't just about that exam at the end of the year because that is such a narrow view of that child it's such a flat line and we look for so much more depth so really for us the matric final is the event and everything up until that point is a process well guys from my side thank you very much for for being so super and being the superstars in education creating a super school with super teachers um and all of the i'm going to say super four times probably more <laughs> but good. How, how great it is to hear about a school that has broken down a lot of the legacy from traditional schooling and education and coming up with the concept that you've got i think the final thing for my audience and i know many of our teachers are going to want to stalk the hell out of you and find out exactly <laughs> what is happening with edu inc so please assist my my colleagues in uh to tell us where they can find more information about your school. The easiest thing is just to hop onto the website, www.eduinc.co.za. There's lots of information there, including how to apply if that's what they want to do. Um, it's all there. One of the things that I'd also just mention, if there are student teachers who are looking for a place to do a prac, a place to experience a different school, we've got a good success rate with people coming through um, as student teachers, there's an exposure to a very different style of teaching in a different school. And we don't put kit gloves on when talking and, and dealing with our, our student teachers. They jump in and do and get a good sense of what's going on and they get good mentorship in that space. And often they get put on the top of the pile when it comes to potential teachers further down the line because they know what it's all about and they've experienced it. So we are open to that being a registered private school. And you talk about being non-mainstream. We mainstream but small. We do have a space for teachers who want to learn about teaching and learn about what it's like to be there. And we are always open for a cup of coffee. Come and have a chat. The best feel is when you're on the campus and mm. get a sense of what's happening. And that's including you. So we're in Four Ways, across the road from Four Ways High School, just down the road from Monte Casino. And as Jack said, on our website, the best thing to do is don't email long diatribes, set up an appointment, come and have a coffee yeah. and chat. Come and that's talk to what us. we're all about. Yeah. It's about talking to people. Well, thank you for that invitation. In my network of student teachers, I am very sure that some of them will be knocking on your door. We'll, of course, include Good. all of the information in the uh, comment section or in the description of the various platforms where we will upload this. Until next time when we chat again, stay super. Thank you. Thanks thank for you having us. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.